Soul Recovery is not just this podcast. It is a community. And each month on the first Monday, we get together on Zoom to support each other. I give a topic, then we break into small groups. It's a powerful way to be seen and witnessed and heard and supported through your own soul recovery journey. This is free to attend and open to everyone. Go to the website to register. The next one is May 6th from 6 to 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Also, in June on the 8th and 9th is an in-person soul recovery retreat in Lafayette, Colorado. This is going to be a weekend of incredible transformation, learning how to use soul recovery in your life and to leave that weekend transformed. Visit the website for more about what to expect and how to register. Enjoy the episode. My name is Reverend Rachel Harrison, and this is the Recover Your Soul podcast. For us to overcome external circumstances, we must first overcome our internal self by focusing on inner change. Outer positive results in our lives will follow. This podcast offers inspiration, strength, and hope through the tools of recovery, spirituality, and positive psychology. I started RecoverYourSoul.net after having profound changes in my life in my recovery from alcoholism and control addiction. I was guided to share these tools with others through this podcast and personal coaching. Personal recovery does not need an addiction to use the tools and principles to better our lives and transform just the desire to make positive changes and grow. As an ordained minister, I continue to study and deepen my relationship with the spiritual principles that have brought me peace, happiness, connection, and abundance. I know that together we can do the work that will recover your soul. Welcome back to Recover Your Soul. We're so happy that you're here today. I'm here with my mom. Say hi, mom. Hello to everyone. This is my mom, Linda, and if you've listened to the episode of How a Nice Girl from Oklahoma Became a Buddhist, you've heard her in the past, and I wanted to bring her on again because, A, I got such a great response from people who really loved that episode, and B, my mom is a wise and amazing person, so she's smiling at me from the other side. So when we recently went to New Mexico, we drove to Santa Fe on a trip together um, post-COVID. And I asked Linda, what do you want to do? What's the first thing you want to do when you can really feel comfortable? And she said, I want to drive my new car to Santa Fe and go eat green chili where, where I grew up and go to museums and do Linda stuff. So we did that. And we were in the car together driving and just having these profound conversations. And I just kept thinking, man, I wish I could capture this for the podcast. This is such great information. And then recently, Linda drove with me up to Summit County, which is about two and a half hours from where we live, when I was speaking as a minister at a unity church in the mountains. And again, just just we just have these great conversations. And so I just want to share I just want to share a little Linda with you. So we were just having lunch and talking about what to talk about because we're just, we're just doing what's in our hearts. She said, you're in this place of really talking about releasing control and about allowing people to be really who they are and to concentrate on themselves. And what came up for her was parenting. So 
Give us a little lead in, Linda, as to the parenting story, your, a little bit of your story and becoming a mom and having, having me and what your philosophy became pretty quickly. Okay. First, I want to um, make a disclaimer of sorts, uh, which is um, I'm going to talk about my philosophy of parenting and and how successful I think it was because I have now a beautiful and wonderful and spiritual adult daughter. But somewhere along the line, I realized that it wasn't a result entirely of my own parenting philosophy, that I was very lucky karmically Mm. in terms of the child that was uh, given to me by the cosmos because she's a beautiful and intrinsically good and wholesome and spiritual being. So parenting her was actually pretty easy. But nonetheless, I can share my philosophy. So the the first piece is that when you married my dad, you had no intention of having children. No, I never intended to have children. Um, It was not a heavily negative thing. There just wasn't much uh, impetus or inspiration. I I might, maybe I was just very self-centered and not all that interested in (laughs) taking on the responsibility um, that I would... I grew up a single child and um, in a fairly remote or rural, semi-rural situation. Uh, so I did not have siblings, and I did not have neighbor kids. And uh, from sixth grade on, I went to a private school on the other side of town on scholarship, and those kids were in a different social class and on the other side of town. So. I had friends at school, but I I really didn't have friends in my neighborhood. I didn't have people to play with. I didn't grow up with people. So I was pretty self-sufficient as a single individual person in the world. Mm -hmm. So I had not aspired to have children. Do you really want me to tell the story? Yeah, I want to hear the story. (laughs) So I married uh, her father, Jerry. Now, he had five brothers, so he grew up in a household of six boys, Uh, in a two-bedroom house. He was actually very accustomed to having lots of people around and almost no privacy. And I would say that that differences in those backgrounds is really one of the fundamental things that eventually led us to part our our lives in a very loving fashion. But we just had such different backgrounds and Mm -hmm. such different outlooks on how we wanted to live our lives. Anyway, uh, in the winter of 1968 or 69, uh, we were somewhere in the high mountains in New Mexico uh, looking at the beautiful Milky Way and starry skies. And we will both tell you, I think, this same story, which is somehow out of that cosmos of twinkling stars, we felt like we received a message. Mm. It was not that we heard a voice. It was a, a message. Mm-hmm. And that message was, I'm coming, <laughs> and you guys are it. <laughs> <laughs> 
we felt like we had been uh, selected and informed by a spirit that we were to be the parents. And we both felt it, um, and it was not shocking. It just was actually rather matter-of-fact, and we both just rather accepted it. And not too long afterwards, I became pregnant with Rachel. With me. Now, to get to my philosophy of parenting, she was born in January 1970 um, at a, a home birth, a natural. Which was pretty unusual in those days. Well, it was it was in the hippie era. There, I was, certainly was not the only person doing it in those days. So a natural birth at home with, with her father by my side helping me through. And two things happened to me, I think, pretty much right away when after she was born in the first several days. One was staring at her beautiful little face and wondering where in the world or out of the world, where did she come from? Mm. I mean, I knew where the body had developed physiologically, but there's a little soul in there, a little spirit, a being. Where did she come from? I remember feeling that way with my kids, too. Yeah, and I certainly still don't know. The answer to that <laughs> wonderful mystery of life. Yeah. The other feeling that I had pretty distinctly and pretty soon was this being is a free and independent person hmm. that has been cosmically put into my care. But she is going to grow up to be an adult and an independent person. And that I felt like any attempt on my part to own or control her was not only futile, but wrong. That's amazing that you had that so early on. It is. And it was... it. It felt a little bit like that same kind of cosmic message of, again, I'm not saying I heard voices, but just that some understanding came through to me that that she was my responsibility to nourish, but not something for me to control. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately she would do exactly what I did, which was she would grow up and leave home and do and be whatever it was she wanted to do and be. And children do that. So ultimately, it's a losing battle, even if for some reason you are trying to control or shape or own right. that I'm, child. I remember you saying that when I was older, the the awareness that if you're going to treat it like that, that you will lose. Yeah. That you will lose because you'll lose your relationship. You'll lose the trust. You'll lose them, you know, in, right. in a much grander way than just the fact that we grow up and become our own people. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think in our other episode, we talked about my growing up. And I I had a very good and wholesome childhood 
and a good family, but I, I was not the person that they probably would have chosen for me to be. Right. I, I was um, unique, let's say, compared <laughs> to their standards. So maybe I just realized that, you know, ultimately, whoever this being is that has been born through me uh, is going to be whoever she is. Right. Yeah. And I felt that way growing up. I definitely felt like even from very early on that I had the space to figure out who that was. And and I and I've said in some of the podcasts that it's interesting because there was so much allowance of that and love of that at home then when I went out into the world it was so different. It was so uh, judgmental and who, who do you think you are? You know, and at home, people was like, who do you think you are? You know, <laughs> what's going on? So it was, it was wonderful to have that at home. And I wasn't prepared for the world sometimes and the judgment of the world sometimes. Mm-hmm. And yet I was raised incredibly independently. You know, you were not a playmate for me. You know, you would, you encouraged me to go do my own thing. And there was a real independence really early on of like, you had your world and your life and we shared this life together. And I was encouraged to have my world and my life from, from young, from really young. Yeah. Um, From going back to the other episode, from the time that I came back from India and you were eight years old and I, I went, dropped back into the science world and then went back to college and worked on a PhD. I was pretty preoccupied <laughs> with my own life and my own um, activities. And so I had, I had no desire whatsoever and no time and energy to like live through you. Mm-hmm. I was living through myself. I had my own life. I, I sir I I didn't give up my my responsibility for caring for you or nurturing you but I I had my own track my I had my own track in life and I recognized that you did and would also have your own track and that I always felt like my job as a parent was to prepare you to prepare you for your independence mm-hmm. to give you the the security of a loving home, a secure, safe home, um, an all, all-encompassing, loving relationship, but also that you should be, you should be well-educated about the world. I didn't try to um, give you a carefree, innocent childhood. Mm-hmm. I wanted you to be safe, secure, and happy, but I wanted you to know things about the world like you knew you knew where babies came from at a, a shockingly early age because you made this beautiful little <laughs> storybook with illustrations that completely shocked your uh, oh, grandparents yeah. <laughs> about the explicit explicitness of your knowledge <laughs> Where the babies actually come out. Oh how they gosh. how they got in there and how they came out. Yeah. 
And I, I, so my responsibility was to give you a, a safe, confident, secure foundation, but to educate you and make you strong and capable of developing into whoever it was you were going to be and to be able to take care of yourself in the world when the, when your age became appropriate. Mm-hmm. And again here, I have to go back to my disclaimer that I was very fortunate because you were such a good kid. Um, and you had a, a really basic sense of common sense, of groundedness, even through, you know, those teenage years where we we never had teenage crisis. We never... We, we didn't, and part, part of that, I think, for me was that um, I was given a lot of freedom and a lot of trust, and you, if you said to me, I'm disappointed in you, that was like the worst thing that could come from you. That was the worst. Pun- there was no need to ground me or take items away. Somehow, having... That there was, you had given me so much respect as a human being that if I did something that took that away for a minute, it was really crushing for me. Like that, I didn't want to do anything that would take that away because that felt really good, you know, to be seen so clearly by you, and that we had, you know, we had agreements of not lying, that we had made an agreement to never lie. And that if I told you the truth, that I wouldn't, you would certainly tell me what you thought, but it wasn't like I would get in this huge amount of trouble for it. And so there was this safety to really share myself and what was going on with me. So I didn't have to sneak around besides the smoking cigarettes. That was, the I, one. That was pretty much the one and only that I know of today. Yeah, that was my one big secret that I started smoking cigarettes when I was in eighth grade. But, but you, you know, the other advice that you gave me really early on, when the teenage years were happening, and people were starting to party and, and, and do stuff was that um, you don't get to be young for very long. And that that each somehow when you said it, it, it really made sense that was you only get to be this young person without all the responsibilities of life for a very short period of time. And you may as well enjoy it. That innocence will pass. And because you had shared with me that you had, you know, done hallucinogenics and, and, and your, your values around that, which was in the other episode that it was a spiritual experience because you didn't drink Drinking was not your part of your deal. Like I, you know, I was an alcoholic, but you never had that. I never witnessed that kind of excess. And so when you spoke to me, it was as if what you were saying was law. And do you remember what you told me? Uh -uh. So your advice to me was you are going to have sex, do drugs and drink and have psychedelic experiences. Don't do them yet. Oh, yeah. Don't, you know, wait, wait until it's time, like really allow yourself to have this foundation of youth and learning because when those things happen, you will have plenty of time for that. Yeah. And so somehow I was like, okay, 
And you said to never do cocaine because it only made you think you were smarter than you really were. And if it wasn't going to make you spiritually better, that it wasn't worth my time. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely remember uh, encouraging you to wait. And part of my strategy there was being completely truthful and honest about what I had done mm -hmm. in my own life, that I had done all those things. And therefore, I felt like I had the authority to advise you to wait because I knew what they were like. I knew what they did to you. I knew what they did to your mind and to your brain and to your perspective on life. And therefore, I think because of that, you were willing to listen to me. I wasn't, I wasn't just being puritanical or, or talking about something I didn't know anything about. Right. Yeah. And it's not like I waited forever. I started drinking when I was a senior in high school, which was, what, 16. But, you know, a lot of kids nowadays start at 13, yeah, I 14, thought 15. I thought that was pretty good we got that far. <laughs> <laughs> you also, one of my other things that I also really appreciated about you was um, that, like, you knew... You knew the inevitability of boys. You knew the inevitability of sex and that you much preferred to have real conversations about it so that I could come to you and be your, you could be my confidant and that I could have trust instead of feeling like I had to run around behind your back. That's, that's almost goes back to the message when you were a baby that the inevitability that you're going to grow up mm -hmm. and that you're going to go through all these life experiences and that it's it's hopeless to try and um, suppress that or right. control that or avoid that and that therefore you needed to have the wherewithal to deal with it because it was going to happen, it was going to be part of your experience. Yeah, it's it's a fine line be between like permission to and a and a saying go do this. Mm -hmm. it, but it was um, this feeling of um, when it's right, be sure it's right. Check yourself. Check and your be emotions careful. and be careful. Yeah, that you you always said you're be careful, be happy, be good in yep. that order. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. When you would leave to go somewhere. Be careful. Be careful. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mean don't do it. It just means be careful. No, kind of try to realize what you're doing and what its implications are going to be. We, we shouldn't give the impression that you didn't have any rules growing up. Oh, no, I had rules. I was, that's the other thing I was actually just going to say. I had this vision, this memory of when I would come in at night and I had very strict um, times to be home. It was like 10 o'clock at night that I had to be home in high school, which nobody else had a 10 o'clock curfew, but I did. And I was uh, somewhere in it. I don't know what it was in me that just felt like if I blow this, I'm going to blow all this freedom that I have, that this trust that we had meant that I basically could be and do anything I wanted. And if I blew that, that would, that would go away. And I didn't want it to go away. So these are the times long before cell phones, you know. And, oh, yeah. And so if you said you were going to be home at 10, and if you were asleep when I came home and it was 10, 10, I always had to wake you up and tell you that I was home. 
and you were not pleased when I was home at 1010. Mm -hmm. And you would say something like, oh, there was traffic or blah, blah. I had to take somebody home. And I would just say, you should have left 10 minutes earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I really didn't have to punish you. I didn't really have to. It was, as you said, just the criticism was, or the, the pointing out of the failure of agreement. I actually, your rules, I would say, I felt more like your rules were agreements. Mm. And they were negotiable, and they changed with age. You know, maybe um, sophomore year you had to be in by 10. Maybe junior year you had to be in by 11. And senior year you had to be in by 12. I mean, these these things stretched and changed and were negotiated. And sometimes I might say, you might ask me, can I go do blah, blah? And I would say, no. And then you would say, why? And then I would say, because I don't think that that's uh, safe, or I don't think that's um, moral, or I don't think that, I think that might lead to other things. And we would talk about it. I never just put my foot down. We would talk about it, and then we might negotiate it. And then I might say, well, okay, you can do this much, but you can't do that. Or, okay, but you have to be home by 10 o'clock. Or, and, and one of the things, when you first started wanting to date, remember, I would tell you, um, as long as there are three or four of you. Right. <laughs> so you couldn't I, just go by yourself. You had to have a group. Yeah. It wasn't okay, like in ninth grade, to start dating one-on-one because mm-hmm. I knew that would lead to more and more and more um, advanced behavior. <clears throat> but okay, if you take a friend or you, or you're, there's four of you or, mm-hmm. or a group of you go together and go, fine, that's fine. You know, the negotiation piece is, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I, I feel like what that taught me as a kid was that I had I had a part in it. I had a voice. I had a part of me that, that could be listened to. And that if you in the end said no, that I respected that, but that I had been given an opportunity to at least express my side. And a lot of times there was movement, but not every time was there movement. It's not like I could always talk you into something. And this ended up being a point of contention in my raising my own kids with Rich, which was I had been raised in this real way of open communication and dialogue and back and forth and negotiation. And he had been raised in the, I told you what to do, and this is how it's going to be, and don't talk back. And so he would say the kids are talking back. And I struggled because I loved that part. And I still love that part, and I still struggle with it in my real adult life, which is I like the communication and the negotiation, and there's a lot of people that communicate very black and white, mm-hmm. you know? And so I find that that is still something that gets me in my life because it was such a great part of growing up that mm-hmm. you never saw it as talking back because I wasn't saying... You know, like, well, why? I was like, tell me, tell me more so I can better understand your decision. Mm-hmm. And then when I understood your decision, then I could respect your decision mm-hmm. and not feel like I was being controlled. Yeah. And you already mentioned the not lying. 
that I think that was also um, a crucial part of our relationship. I got convinced of the importance of not lying before you were, I think before you were born um, with one of the spiritual teachers that I was studying with. Because he said, if you always tell the truth, then what you say will come true. Mm. Uh, which maybe, you know, you can take that literally or not if you want. But to me, there's incredible importance and power in what we say. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And think. Yes. Um, let's just stay with saying right now, okay. which is, you know. And so I became convinced that it was very important not to lie. And I will admit that I sometimes chose my words very carefully mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in a way that maybe they were a little misleading, but I, I, I would never tell a blatant lie. But I conveyed that to you at a very young age. Very young about age. It's very, very important to always tell the truth and, and to never lie. And so then, as you said, I would tell you, if you'll tell me the truth, I won't be angry. It didn't mean I might not be displeased. Mm -hmm. And as you said, I would tell you my opinion on Mm -hmm. the matter of, well, you really should not have done that because Mm -hmm. it was harmful to someone else or so forth. But then I would not be angry and I I would not punish you. And you wouldn't hold it against me. I I think one of the gratitudes that I have is that... It wasn't like there was this stuff that got drug along that I had that I had failed or been a disappointment in some parts of my life that kind of got brought up again and dumped back on me again. Because we had that agreement, we had this clean way of interacting with each other that is to this day that doesn't have a lot of like bent up mm-hmm frustrations or irritations or resentments for each other. But you started it. Mm-hmm. You started it and how you modeled it. Yeah. And it was just us, you know, for, well, sort of. So my parents divorced when I was eight, and then it was just us um, until I was thir- 14. 14 when you started dating um, my stepdad. And so it's been, but, and it's always just been, us as friends that was the other thing is that you were always my friend as much as you were my mom not your playmate but your friend right your confidant we could always talk about anything and that goes back to our our recent car trips together we talk about anything and everything from the silly and trivial to life and literally life and death and after death and you know and we and we can relate and be honest and open on all those levels. Yeah. So let's let's move on to when then when you started college. Mm-hmm. I convinced you to start college at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and I was uh, going to be living in Boulder at the same time. And you said to me, "Well, Mom." I don't know, is that going to be a good idea for me to go to college in the same town that you live in? Right. And I said, well, try it for a year. If, if you don't like it, if it's not working out, you can go somewhere else. But it worked out, and, I, and it worked out, I think, because I respected your independence. About 
a month or so into that first semester, you called me one day and said, Mom, you never call me. <laughs> I haven't heard from you lately. You don't you, you haven't called me. And I said, That's right. Because I'm not calling you. I'll wait for you to call me. And yeah. it had been me that had been doing the calling, calling, calling until I noticed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I I realized how important it was then for you to really establish your independence. Mm-hmm. That's what happens to for most kids when they go away from home to college. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I I didn't meddle. I didn't I didn't call. I let you call me. I made I made it absolutely clear that I'm always here. Mm-hmm. If you need me or want me, but I'm not going to meddle, and I'm not going to ask too many questions. You've you've done that for all these years. Yeah, in fact, go back to high school. Uh, you kept a diary some of those years, mm-hmm. and sometimes you would just leave your diary open on your desk in your room. I might go in there for some reason, gather up dirty clothes or something, but I never once read or opened or picked up or looked at that diary. And that was the trust that we had, that I actually knew that I didn't need to hide it, that I that I was safe in that way. And I've, I've worked with people who that was not their story, that they had things found or discovered, and it was crushing to them. And I, I, I can't say enough about that level of trust that I knew that you had. And that was because I knew we had mutual respect. I didn't need to be trying to find out what you were doing behind my back because I really didn't think you were doing anything very much behind my back that I didn't know about. Well, and you also watched me in all those years go through addiction and a hard marriage and raising the kids, and you continued that model that you're that we're talking about. It's like you were always there for me, but you didn't meddle. You didn't come in and say, here's what I think you should do, or I'm, your life has completely fallen apart, and I'm here to change it and pick up the pieces, and I think I know better. It's been pretty profound to have you live two miles from me for 29 years, you know, now, and we've been in Boulder, and now we both live in Louisville, and have the space to be a complete shit show and be completely fallen apart and not be okay. But know that for you, I'm okay. That even that is okay. Whatever I'm going through is okay. And that has given me the foundation to feel like I can pick myself back up because you loved me anyway. You never told me what to do. But when I asked, you provided me with whatever guidance felt right to you that you asked for that I asked for Mm -hmm. I I can't even think of more than more I can't even really think of a time that you have just said listen I know you didn't ask for it but I'm going to tell you what I think maybe not in your adult life I I do remember and like in high school years sometimes I would say you don't have to say anything just listen Yes, but that's high school. That's important. And and because <laughs> and we had would, this trust you know, level, I was, would listen. It was not fussing at you. It was just, I just want you to hear what, how I see it. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to respond at all. 
Yeah. And you would do that. You would sit and listen, and then that was the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, but as an adult, actually, you've always credited me with that not meddling and not telling you how to fix your life, but I, the truth is I didn't know how to fix your life. Mm. I, I didn't know what to do besides love you, and I, and I think it's a big mistake when other people think they know how to fix other people's lives. And that's that's something you've been teaching and talking about right. for a long time. Is we don't know. We don't know. We don't know what all the karma is, what all the implications are, what all the causes and conditions are. We don't necessarily know what is the right thing for the future. We have to let people work out their own lives. Yeah. And if they ask for our opinion, we can give it respectfully. But then we're done. We can't go in and fix their lives for them. The the fact that you've been practicing Buddhism for my entire life for 50 years, I think is such a foundational piece of your spiritual base that has given you the ability to have this peace of yourself. And when I say peace, I mean like inner peace, um, this serenity, this calmness, this ability to be an observer and be a supporter and a confidant more than the director of my movie. You've, right. you've really, you've really just let me create my own movie, my own life. And I'm so happy and grateful that we've been able, both of us, to do this now for 51 years. Mm-hmm. We've never lived more than five miles apart True your entire fact. life. And I and it's not a problem. It's right. actually, we probably should see each other more. <laughs> You're busy. <laughs> you have a busy life. <laughs> but we, so you. See, the point is that we let each other live our own independent lives mm-hmm. because we have we have separate lives we have separate spiritual destinies mm-hmm. as individuals but we both know that we're totally there for each other when we're needed yeah or when we're called and i'm so happy that we've been able to do that and that that we've been able to watch and and learn and know each other year by year, as we have each grown older. You know, so many times kids move away from home, like when they go to college, and then they only go home once a year, and it always feels like they're kids coming back home. Right. But you and I know who we are. You, I know who you are as a 51-year-old woman with two grown sons, and you know who I am as a 75-year-old aging Buddhist practitioner, widow, craftsperson. Mm-hmm. And children and parents don't always have that wonderful opportunity to watch each other age through life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and love each other and accept each other for just who we are in each of those different parts of our journey, each of those chapters. So we could close by my going back to my disclaimer that Yes, I have all this wonderful philosophy, but I was lucky. I got such a great kid. (laughs) I was pretty lucky, too. Thanks for sharing your philosophy and more of yourself with with me. I always love listening. It, It reminds me 
of things that I hadn't thought of and for our listeners. And I just love you so much, Mom. I love you too. Until next time, namaste. As I was reflecting on my conversation with my mom earlier today and working on editing the podcast, I just found it so interesting and fascinating that I ended up being totally different than my mom in my need to control the world around me and that she had been so good at just letting me be myself and given me this independence and the awareness that I have that I had taken that independence and that success that I felt of being able to create my own world and destiny and had over applied that to everybody else in my life, especially my husband and my kids, especially my husband and my kids. So it's, it's interesting that we come from these different places. We come from these lives. We come from these families. We come from these dynamics and yet we are still our own people that there are some people that come from massive addiction and they have this foundation of clarity and peace and simplicity almost that like my mom had. And yet I came from, you can tell in who she is that she was a very emotionally even person. And I ended up wanting in my relationship, I chose somebody who had more energy, more passion, more ups and downs. And I became my own alcoholic. I became my own person that had my own things that I needed to overcome. And just how fascinating that is. And that's what I love about soul recovery. I love the piece that we each have our own stories. We each come from something in our childhood that creates different things in us. And as much as I have so much appreciation for the way that I was raised, there's stuff that came from that. There's patterns that started. There's the fact that there was never any drama when I was growing up. And so when I was in the world with all this drama, I didn't know how to handle it. So I clenched on tightly to try to fix it, to try to make it become, to try to change it to try to make it be different. And so I just love that this is what we do to discover ourselves because when we can recognize it, then there's some peace around it. It doesn't have control of us anymore. It doesn't have control of us anymore. And I have such gratitude for the clarity to be able to do this process. And I'm so happy to be able to share it with you. And I hope that it's an inspiration to each of you in some way to be doing your soul recovery work yourself. So I just wanted to share that reflection with you post interview. Until next time. Namaste. Thank you for listening. And I hope this episode offers you tools, guidance and inspiration on your journey to recover your soul. For more information, please visit the website, recoveryoursoul.net. There you can find out more about Rev. Rachel, book coaching or spiritual counseling sessions, read the blog, listen to music, connect to social media, as well as subscribe to receive email updates. We thank you for supporting the production of this podcast by donating on the homepage. 
And by following, subscribing, and reviewing this podcast, you're helping to spread the Recover Your Soul message. We hope that you'll follow us on Instagram and Facebook and join the private Facebook group to become part of this transformational community. The Recover Your Soul podcast and its content is for educational purposes only and is not allied or representative of any organizations or religions. It's based on the opinions and experience of Reverend Rachel Harrison. Recover Your Soul claims no responsibility to any persons or entity for any liability, loss, damage, or cause alleged to be caused directly or indirectly as a result of its use. Applications or interpretations of the information represented herein. Take what you need and leave the rest.